Also, I want to thank uh, Josh Irvin for assisting me. I was in capable hands this morning, uh, for sure. And I noticed, I think there's a brand new clock there facing me. I wonder if that was installed just for me. But, it, you know, it has a, a very bright face, very white. It's hard. You just can't miss it. So um, don't worry. I, I see it. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be looking at a remarkable chapter of the Bible. We're going to be looking at John chapter 17, which is uh, the longest of our Lord's recorded prayers. Uh, it's known as His High Priestly Prayer. And uh, to give you a little bit of a context, you may remember that more than half of John's gospel uh, is given over to the account of the last week of our Lord, beginning in chapter 12 with uh, the Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And uh, as we come to chapter 17, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he has just completed his final words to them. And then he turns and begins this prayer, and it is remarkable. Uh, it is so rich. It is so deep. Uh, to give you an idea of how rich and deep it is, when James Montgomery Boyce preached for the Gospel of John many years ago, he preached 17 sermons on this text that I'm doing one sermon on today. So I know, I know. While there is, there's great, great benefit in going into the exegetical depth that he did, there's also great benefit in seeing the landscape of such a chapter and how it's put together and the structure and how this prayer uh, helps us as well. And uh, so we're going to be looking at this prayer in three parts. First of all, Jesus' prayer for himself. Second of all, his prayer for his immediate disciples around him. And then, finally, the prayer addresses those who will believe through them. That means he's, his prayer for you and for me. And rather than reading the, the whole chapter at one time, we're going to work through it section by section. So I'll read the first five verses, and uh, we'll discuss that, and then we'll move on. But let me pray as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, to study the Scriptures together. Lord, uh, you have given us the words of life, and we thank you for the opportunity to, to study this uh, remarkable prayer, to hear the words that, that Jesus expressed on this, uh, this very important night. And so please use these, uh, the, this time together to encourage us and strengthen us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I encourage you to follow along if you have your Bible or look at the Pew Bible, page 903. Um, these are the first five verses of chapter 17. This is God's holy word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth and have accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And you'll notice as the prayer begins, uh, Jesus did not bow his head and close his eyes as we do when we pray, but 
the ancient tradition was to lift up one's eyes to the heavens when one prayed. And so this Jesus does, and he begins his prayer with the words, the hour has come. Now, earlier in John's gospel, there have been at least five times when Jesus has said, the hour has not come, the hour has not come. Well, the hour has come now because it's time for him to offer himself as the sacrifice, the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice for those who will believe in him. And this prayer, this first part of the prayer has two requests. You'll notice, glorify your son, that's the first part. Second, that the son may glorify you. And we might note that to glorify God is to give him praise, the adoration, to magnify him. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kavod, which means heavy and weightiness. It, it signifies to identify the, uh, the weightiness, significance of God and to praise him accordingly. And so his prayer is glorify the Son, that is, reveal his praiseworthiness. And what you might expect, you might expect the heavens to open wide and the angels to come down like they did outside of Bethlehem. By the way, we, we were outside Bethlehem. We saw the, the shepherd's fields. That was pretty impressive. But there wasn't going to be that kind of show right now. Why is that? Because when Jesus is speaking of this experience of glory, he's speaking about his death. He's speaking about the cross. Uh, in our world, we talk about upward mobility. Well, one author reminds us about the principle of downward humility, that is to mark the Christian and certainly marked our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came down, he came and became a man. He experienced hunger, thirst, pain, weakness, sickness, and temptation. Did he come down far enough? Was that far enough? No, because we need more than a good example. So then he was rejected by his friends. He was rejected and mocked by his enemies. He was deserted by his followers. He was scourged. He was nailed to the cross. Was that far enough? No, because what we needed was more than just an example during suffering. No, what we needed was that Savior who was willing to be forsaken by the Father who is willing to bear the penalty and punishment for our sins. And so low that as the Apostles' Creed teaches, he descended into hell. On that cross, he experienced hell itself for you and for me. Only this was enough, because this is what was required for the atonement of our sins, to be right with our Father in heaven. Earlier in chapter 12, Jesus said, Shall I ask to be delivered from this? Shall I say, Save me from this hour? No, he said, for this purpose I have come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then here it says again, that the Son may glorify you. So was the Father glorified by all that Jesus said and did up to this point? Yes. By his miracles, by his teaching, by his perfect obedience. But, you know, the height of the glory that he brought to the Father was the depth of his suffering his willingness to go to the cross, that obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. That was when Jesus was most pleasing to his Father. 
But the glory of the Son to come included the triumphant resurrection and ascension too. And Jesus goes on to speak of the authority that He was given to manifest that glory. He says, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, authority is the right over someone or the right to do something. Now, I tend to run into more and more people who aren't able to do anything for me. Do you ever go to the uh, service department of a store or something? Um, or they, I guess they used to call it the complaint department, remember? And uh, mostly now we do this kind of thing over the telephone. And it's so frustrating. You know when you have to call about something and the first person says, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. I'll have to transfer you. So they transfer you and say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. And you wait another 10 minutes and they transfer you back. And finally you get to somebody who's able to help you. Oh, yes, I can help you with that. Aren't those great words to hear? Not everyone is able or has the authority to solve your problem. Well, now what's the problem that Jesus has the authority to solve? He says, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Now, try to make a phone call about that. Try to call and say, hey, can you give me eternal life? What? No, there's only one person you can go to, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made it possible for you to know God. This is exactly what he says. He says that, okay, eternal life is that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus' work on the cross makes it possible for you to have a relationship with God, to know Him. Now, every once in a while on Facebook, someone asks, who's the most famous person you ever met? And then the comments section fills up with different names of, of people. They try to one-up the last person. But these are usually casual interactions with, with people. So, for example, a couple months ago, I was talking to, to a man, and he said, oh, yeah, he said, uh, I met Richard Gere. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. I said, I was walking out of my hotel in New York City, and he was walking in, and we said hi. Okay. Well, I have to admit, he didn't claim to know Richard Gere. That would imply a lot more, I think you know. But when the Bible talks about knowing, it talks about an intimate relationship. Not just knowing about God, but knowing Him personally, knowing that He's walking with you every day. This is what Jesus gives you. So this is why Jesus came. You can see what God is like. He said to His disciples, you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Jesus has the authority to give you eternal life. Have you asked him? If you ask him and believe, eternal life will be yours. You have any doubt? Well, just think about that thief on the cross. Thief on the cross never went to Sunday school, didn't know the Lord's Prayer, didn't know the Apostles' Creed. And when he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, remember what Jesus said? 
Did he say, well, we're going to have to wait and see how this works out first? No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's Jesus Christ having the authority to grant eternal life to those who believe, and so it is for you and for all who will believe. But he goes on, he says in verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world was. So there's one more step of glory that he's looking forward to, and that is being returned to uh, the perfect communion and glory with the Father and the Spirit in which he existed before the creation of the world, something we can't even begin to imagine. Someday we're going to see what that's like. We can't imagine. We can't imagine what Jesus was missing by coming to this earth but was going to be restored when he went to heaven. We had glimpses of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there was a, a facet, a glimpse of it, but nothing the likes of which we will see one day in which he's experiencing now. And so those two prayers in that first section, were they answered? Yes, God was glorified in Jesus' perfect obedience. And yes, God glorified the Son in raising him from the dead. And as we read elsewhere, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' prayer for glory. The second part of the prayer is a prayer for his disciples. Allow me to read verses 6 to 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the word the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So here you have the note. You can see it all throughout that Jesus is speaking of those whom the Father has given to them. And you also note, remember, that Jesus is praying this prayer out loud in the upper room, in the presence of his disciples. Could you imagine how encouraging this would be to them? First of all, to, to remember that it was not their idea ultimately, but it was God's idea. God had given them to him, and they have believed. 
And just earlier in chapter 16, they seemed to get it finally. Look at verse 29 of chapter 16. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? So finally, the bell goes on, and Jesus affirms that. These are mine. These are those who now believe. But I want you to see specifically the two prayer requests in this section. The prayer requests, the uh, first one, is found in verse uh, 11. I am no longer in the world. They are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them. Guard them. Protect them. This is something that they were going to be needing. Why? Well, because, Jesus says in this text, that the world hates them. Now, we're talking about the unbelieving world here. The unbelieving world set against against the ways of God. It says, keep them, protect them, guard them, watch over them. Keep them in your name. In other words, according to everything that has been revealed about the Father. But notice uh, the reason for this, that they may be one even as we are one. We'll talk more about that unity in the, the third part of the prayer. And uh, I think it's also interesting that you notice that he says, I've kept them in your name, verse 12, and guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's very sobering, is it not? The word destruction is the same word from which we get the satanic title Apollyon. And son of destruction is a uh, figure of speech which means one who is destined for destruction. And it's obvious from this text and other texts that he's speaking about Judas. Now, Jesus isn't saying here, I was successful in guarding all the Father gave to me except this one. Only one got away. I've got a 91% success rate here. No, Jesus in these words is even identifying that this was a part of God's plan. Notice it says, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Psalm 41.9 says, even my close friend whom I trusted, the one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And though we must affirm that this was part of the plan of God, it's also clear that Judas was responsible for his actions. And here we see that unique and mysterious tension between human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. Why do they need God's protection? Well, the world has hated them, verse 14. Jesus had said back in chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And in case you haven't noticed, I don't know if you've you've noticed or not, but the claims of Christianity are not very popular today. Not at all. They weren't popular when Jesus first uttered them, But in our culture, they are unpopular. Let's start with the fundamental. Let's start with the fact that we need to inform people, oh, find the most tactful way to say, you're a sinner. (laughs) 
It sometimes helps to say, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. That, that helps a little bit. But still, people can be easily offended by that, even though a common aphorism among people is to say, oh, I'm only human. What does that mean? I'm only human. Or they say, nobody's perfect. Yes, yes, that's the doctor of total depravity. <laughs> nobody's perfect. I'm only human. That's right. Okay, if you get over that, if you get over that, then how about the teaching about, if they accept that, then what about the teaching of the exclusivity of the gospel? Okay, you got, you got a problem here, you got a problem, but there's only one way that it can be solved. And not by being a really good person, that doesn't do it. No, no. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's exclusive. It's, it's offensive to the ears of, of people. Uh, and, you know, I'm so, uh, I'm so happy that when they had that, that first very brief service after the death of Queen Elizabeth, there are certain scriptures that were read, and certainly John 14 was read. In my father's house, there were uh, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, etc. And I was just waiting to make sure that they included the verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they included it. You know why they included it? Because Queen Elizabeth wanted it included. She was a devout, uh, devout believer. But nonetheless, uh, this Christian teaching, as according to the Scriptures, is not very popular. But it's, it's not just that people need to be protected from other people, but Jesus is concerned about the evil one. Look at verse 15. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Oh, yes, the devil is alive and well, my friends. He was certainly alive and well that night. Remember back in chapter 12, we read, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, down verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. So Satan was trying to mess this thing up from the very beginning. Actually, with the, the slaughter of the innocents by Herod, straight through the temptation in the wilderness, but Jesus was triumphant. And right here, and in Luke's gospel, we read that uh, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, the devil has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so the wonderful thing about this high priestly prayer is that Jesus continues to pray for you and for me. And he also reminds us at the end of chapter 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's his promise. And then he goes on to say the second, the second prayer request. The first one is keep them, protect them. Second one in this section is sanctify them in the truth. To sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. Jesus is saying that uh, he's praying that they will grow more godly in character, and this is what distinguishes them from the world. And as someone once said, he found me just as I am, but I'm glad he didn't lead me that way. Aren't you? So his determination, uh, the theological word, of course, is sanctification, causing you to grow in holiness and righteousness. But he also identifies the way that that happens in the truth, sanctify them in the truth. 
or what is the truth? You know, lots of people ask that question. But aren't you glad you know where you can find truth? Nod heads. Yes, thank you. Right here. You can find the truth in the Scriptures. People are searching everywhere, but we have it right in front of our eyes. And it's the best offense against the antagonism of the world and the devil. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil? How did he respond? Every time he responded by quoting Scripture. He didn't say, don't you know who I am? Satan certainly knew who he was. But he responded by quoting the Scriptures. And that's why grounding yourself in Scripture is so very important for you and for me, even to this day. I'm so happy that, that you come to a church where God's truth is, is honored. You know, it's not the case everywhere. Aren't you glad you don't come to a church where you're going to hear the latest social commentary or political insights or eco economic predictions? No, no, no. You can stay home and watch the... Don't stay home. Stay home and watch the Sunday news shows for that. But no... You want to hear the Word of God, you come here. And I know Pastor Drew because I listen. He preaches the Word verse by verse. That's what we need. Because man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So take every opportunity that you can to grow in the Word, to feed on the Word. Uh, were those prayers answered? Well, all the apostles except one uh, were martyred, but in the book of Romans were pro promised that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory to follow. There's a glory again. And the sanctification process continued for them as it will for us. Third part of the prayer. Jesus prayed for himself prayed for his immediate disciples. Now he's going to pray for another group of people. This is verses 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, that is, for those seated with him there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Notice how confident Jesus is that his work is going to be successful because his disciples will survive, but not only will they survive, but they'll thrive in communicating the gospel to the world in which they live. And now here we are as a result of the fruit of those first disciples. That's remarkable. And so Jesus is praying for us. What does he pray? Two things. First of all, verse 21, that they may be one. 
just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you. It talks about that remarkable unity uh, of the, the ontological trinity, the trinity in his being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the unity that we have with God is, is different. It's not the same essence as it is with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But nonetheless, our unity is a true unity uh, with God uh, through unity with Christ. But that should produce unity among the body of believers. And when the Scriptures talk about unity, he's not speaking about uniformity. We're not all the same. Uh, many of you know that for many years I served as pastor of a multi-ethnic church in Upper Darby, uh, where we had uh, first-generation immigrants from more than 20 nations. And I could look, out, look on the congregation on Sunday morning and it was like the United Nations, and I could see people sitting beside each other who were geopolitical enemies, supposed to be, but there they were, worshiping, praising, studying, serving together. But it's not just in a church like that. In a, in a church like this, we also have different kinds of diversity. We've got well-off people and not-so-well-off people. We've got good-looking people and not-so-good-looking people. We got older people and not so much older people. We got educated people and not so educated people. We got Democrats and Republicans, believe it or not. And that unity is one that Jesus desires among us. And one of the reasons I love the Church of Jesus Christ is because people from every background, nation, culture, socioeconomic situation can come and be a part one with us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's at stake? What's at stake is, in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me and love them. That's, that's high stakes, my friends. That's what's at stake based on our unity. What the world looks, is, looks at us, does it see a united, loving body? Here, they come here. They do. Sadly, though, the testimony of many churches is damaged by divisions and bickering. This past spring, uh, our little Ben, little grandson Ben, redheaded, he's not so little anymore. We'll bring him around sometime so you can see how he's grown. Many of you will remember him. But he was in his school's musical, The Music Man. And one of his favorite numbers, and one of my favorite numbers, is one of the ladies in town saying, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheap, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more. But, you know, speaking of the gossips of River City, it's really unfair to identify the potential for division as only in one gender. You know, it's possible for men's divisive words to be destructive, too. So we need to guard our tongues. Remember this unity for which Jesus prayed. Someone once said, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints I know, that's a different story. But how we keep this unity is to keep our focus on the glory of Jesus Christ. Keep uh, our, our focus on that which he has called us to do and to be. Uh, some years ago, I read a, a biography of uh, General Omar Bradley. He was one of only five individuals who attained the rank of five-star general or general of the army. You'll probably recognize the names of the others, George Marshall, Douglas MacArthur, Henry Arnold, and Dwight Eisenhower. 
In his book, uh, General Bradley talks about the issue of morale. He says, you know, if you go behind the front lines to the rear, that's where you find people complaining and whining. They complain about their socks, their socks aren't right, or they complain about the food. But if you bring them to the front lines and they're facing the enemy, that's when they become a band of brothers. And I believe that as we keep the church, we keep ourselves focused on the objective that Jesus has given us, to reach our community with the gospel, uh, to encourage one another and to love and glorify him, we're going to have a growing unity that the world will be drawn to and will testify to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the second request in this part of the prayer, as I close, he says, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's his prayer that we'll be with him and see his glory one day. You look forward to that? I do. And you know, the only reason we're going to be there is because of him. That's the only reason. Thirteen years ago, this weekend, uh, my son was honored by his alma mater, Wake Forest University. Uh, many of you know Nate was a decorated combat veteran in, uh, in the Iraq Operation Iraqi Freedom, and uh, his university found out about it, and so they decided that they would, they would honor him. So it was really exciting. I got to go. Barb was not able to be there, but I got to go. And it was really exciting because we, we pulled up to the parking lot. There's a big gate, and the guard looks at Nate and waves him in. He looks at me. I said, I'm with him. Now I got to go. And uh, they, wanted, they wanted Nate to meet all the, the big donors, you know. They've got this, this place up there, all the colleges, uh, top colleges have them, where they, the rich people can go, big donations to the university. And so there's an elevator there, and there's a guy at the elevator who looks at Nate, and, and he says, uh, go ahead, he looks at me. I said, I'm with him. I went, got in the elevator, and then go up. There's another situation where you've got to get into the room where all the, all the people are, uh, who want to meet Nate, and so there's a guy standing there. He looks at Nate, says, go on through. He looks at me. I said, I'm with him. I get to go. And then, so, and then it comes time for, the, for him to be recognized on the field. They're going to bring him out to the 50-yard line. And so field access is not easy either. So again, down to the field, once again, the guy looks at Nate and says, go ahead. And he looks at me, and I said, I'm with him. And so I got, I, got, I got the field access. And so, but the point is that the only reason I could go anywhere there was because of him. And the only reason that you and I are going to be in heaven is because, you know what? We can say, I'm with him. But even better, even better, he's going to turn to you and say, he's with me. She's with me. That's going to be glorious, my friends. And that's something we, that's a hope that we have, a unity that we have. And yes, those prayers for glory will be answered one day too for each of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us to, to look at such a, a rich text. And Father, I pray that you will have used these words to encourage us to uh, look to this sufficient Savior. Uh, we thank you so much that 
that he has brought glory to you. He continues to bring glory to you. Amazingly, to bring glory to you through us. May we be those who are committed to enjoy uh, you and um, love you and glorify you forever. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.